Hello, welcome to The Elephant. I'm Kevin Kaners. Well, the long-awaited UN summit on climate change is just around the corner. On November 30th, over 130 leaders from around the world will meet in Paris and try to set the stage for a global agreement on climate change. They'll only be there for a couple of days, but then they'll hand things off to their team of ministers and negotiators. And then in the course of the next two weeks, those negotiators representing 196 countries will try to hammer out a deal to get the world on a path to reducing global carbon emissions and keep the planet's temperature increase below at least two degrees. And you could be forgiven if you have the sense, wait, haven't we been here before? Because in a sense we have. This meeting in Paris is called COP21. COP stands for, in UN speak, the Conference of the Parties. And the 21, well, the 21 is the number of times that countries have met before in order to try to figure out a way to collectively stop us from heading down this path of climate meltdown. It's a process that started way back in 1992 with the Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro. But while the whole process is an old one, up until now, results have been mixed. Or mixed might be a bit generous. The world's emissions have risen steadily since these UN summits began. And the only time that the world agreed to a binding treaty to limit emissions with the Kyoto Protocol in 1997, it soon fell apart. Along the way, there have been major disagreements between rich countries and poor countries about just who should cut their emissions, by how much, and who should pay for the consequences. While these UN summits on climate change take place each year, Copenhagen in 2009 was the last time that leaders around the world came together to try to strike a formal treaty to reduce global emissions. That effort largely ended in failure and breakdown, with only an informal agreement coming out of it called the Copenhagen Accord. It was an understanding that President Obama spearheaded between the US, China, South Africa, India, and Brazil, but which the rest of the world was left out of and could only acknowledge after the fact. A key difference this time with the process in Paris is that countries are taking a bottom-up approach. Instead of trying to lay down an emissions reduction target from above that countries will have to meet, this time the vast majority of countries have submitted plans in advance of Paris, outlining what their national targets will be for how much they're going to decrease their emissions. These are called INDCs. They're voluntary, and it's been left to each country to decide what exactly they're going to pledge. For example, the U.S. has announced it will cut its emissions by 26% compared with 2005 levels, while China has agreed that its emissions will peak by 2030. But even if every single country actually meets its voluntary target that it's put forward, we're still heading towards at least 2.7 degrees of warming. And remember, over 2 degrees is considered dangerous by most scientists. To us outsiders, this UN process can all seem opaque and complex. So over the next three days, we'll be bringing you the perspective of three different negotiators who have lived and breathed these talks. They'll give us a sense of what it's like to actually be in these negotiation rooms and what we should understand about what will be taking place in Paris. First up in the series is Kevin Conrad. While he's now based in America, Kevin Conrad grew up in Papua New Guinea and he represented that country at climate talks for about eight years. He's also the director of a party group at these talks called the Coalition for Rainforest Nations. This year, he's on Panama's delegation. So Kevin Conrad has seen these negotiations inside and out. And he actually gained prominence during a critical moment at these UN talks in 2007, when there was an impasse at the COP negotiations in Bali caused by the US. He was representing Papua New Guinea and spoke out. Here's a clip from CNN at the time. You know, the formulation that has been put forward, we cannot accept. Thank you. Thank you, United States. The U.S. was booed as it asked for more commitments from developing countries, provoking this from Papua New Guinea. And there's an old saying, if you're not willing to lead, then get out of the way. And I would ask the United States, we ask for your leadership. We seek your leadership. But... If for some reason you are not willing to lead, leave it to the, less, the rest of us. Please get out of the way. And then this total change from the United States. That we will go forward and join consensus in this today. I reached Kevin Conrad by phone. Well, Kevin Conrad, welcome to The Elephant. 
so basically for our listeners, we're, we're trying to get sort of a, a layman's guide to understanding what goes on at these UN climate conferences as we head into Paris. And so you represented for, for many years Papua New Guinea at these talks, right? Correct. So can you tell me a bit about what, what's actually going to be happening in Paris for, for someone who has never been to these talks? How would you explain it? What is the goal? The goal is to get as many countries representing as much as possible of the the total carbon that is emitted in the atmosphere annually to agree on bottom-up plans that reduce emissions at the same time. And so the question is, can we still develop at the same rate or close to it in ways that don't poison our atmosphere. And that's disconnecting from, from fossil fuels in, in summary or figuring out how to, how to burn fossil fuels in, in a manner that doesn't put them up in the atmosphere the next thousand years. And, and so that's what world leaders are, are going to be trying to do is to figure out a way to collectively do that? Exactly. The, you know, the I guess we'll, we'll get into this in more detail going forward, but the, the big debate is about sort of who caused this problem. And as we think about solutions, whose responsibility is, is it to implement and should, particularly for poor countries, should their transition be funded by the rich countries, which in many cases, are, are, have put the most carbon up in the atmosphere. So leaders are trying to say, how do we solve this problem and how do we solve it in an equitable manner that allows the poor to continue to develop and allows the rich to sort of transition to a more sustainable energy regime primarily? So I think those of us who have you know, had at least a, a moderate interest in, in climate change or a concern about climate change, um, but haven't followed it super closely. The, the whole thing has a, a bit of a sense of deja vu. Like, you know, there was Copenhagen where we were told that this is like the make or break deal and, and it all counts on this. And then nothing seemed to really happen. And now we're, we're back at the, the same spot six years later. <laughs> is there anything different about this time? Like, it seems like we've been over and over and over this again. It's called COP21, which means there's been 20 previous meetings is there any reason we should feel any differently about this one? Well, you know, if, if you think back about the history, in 1992 in Rio was when the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change was agreed. And in fact, the whole world agreed to that convention and ratified it, in fact, you know, including President George Bush the first. Um, the United States ratified that as well. And what was what was powerful about that was that you had the entire world agreeing that we had a challenge before us. And in 1992, I you know, a lot of the people didn't understand exactly how that challenge would impact them. As as time advanced and and in 1997 or 5 years later, the Kyoto Protocol was implemented. And what the Kyoto Protocol basically did, it was top-down. It said, we realize we have a problem. We understand what needs to be done to solve it. Let's have everyone agree to take, in effect, top-down targets that add up to what, where we need to go and implement them domestically. But that proved difficult. Uh, so countries like Canada pulled out very quickly, Japan has pulled out, and the U.S., though they endorsed it at the meeting, the, the, it was never ratified uh, by the Senate, and it quickly sort of unraveled what I call sort of a top-down mentality. In Copenhagen, the, it, there was, there's value. I mean, in fact, Paris is, is, is operating on the ashes of, of Copenhagen. It created the fertilization that was necessary for what uh, we hope to achieve in Paris. And in Copenhagen, the idea was that it would be bottom-up, that rather than uh, an international body, in effect, telling countries what they had to do, that countries should be looking at their own national circumstances or what's going on in their country and sort of voluntarily produce plans saying, how is it 
we're going to contribute. In effect, what President Obama has done, he's, he's looked at the, in the United States, he's looked at the U.S. economy, he's, he's tried to, through executive order, implement different initiatives. It's the same thing that China has done. And it is, in effect, what, you know, 170 countries have done leading up to Paris, which is to create these national plans. These are the so-called INDCs? These are the INDCs. But that, what, what failed in Copenhagen was, you know, I've listened to other prognosticators and, you know, and I think it was Kevin Rudd, uh, I can't remember if it was on your program or somewhere else, you know, his view was, well, we had all the leaders around the table and China and India sent ministers and they weren't serious. And it's because they weren't serious that Copenhagen failed. I, I disagree with that. What, what What failed in Copenhagen was, a philosophy that all countries must be the same and that in order to solve this problem there can be no difference between the china and us per se that you know that the that china and the us have to have to progress in lockstep as it were uh, or simplistically in order for a deal to work and you know at that time china and india were saying guys what what you're putting forward is not historically correct it's not correct from a development standpoint, and we don't want to be party to an agreement that is going to fail because it's based on wrong, the fundamentals that are incorrect or, or a wrong worldview. And what, what was the wrong worldview in that case? Well, the wrong worldview was that all, that all countries, when it comes to climate change, are effectively the same or need to be the same very quickly. And it ignores that, you know, a country like China with a GDP of $3,000 per person versus the United States of $45,000 per person, you can't expect the, the people in China to respond as, as effectively as the United States or in Europe. So, yes, we have to solve this collectively. There are different responsibilities for different countries based on their their historical emissions, their current emissions, and their their comparative wealth. Uh, and we need an agreement that is inclusive and deals with that that reality. And that's where Copenhagen got it a bit wrong and failed. The, the question is whether in Paris we can get that balance right, and that's that's our challenge. So you mentioned ideally there would be a different approach. So. Is that what you mean in terms of like, so each country or 170 or more now have given their own personal plans of how they uh, will go about reducing their emissions. So do you, you see that as an improvement over uh, one goal binding treaty? Well, I don't. Um, <laughs> the problem is that's the reality. When you're dealing with a, a global problem and you need a global solution, and that solution is very clear from the metrics in terms of what needs to happen. It would be much better for reasonable people to get around a table and fairly apportion responsibilities to each other and then hold each other accountable to achieve that goal. The problem we have is that the Kyoto Protocol, which tried to do that, has failed and, and people have, have walked away from it because they say you know, that they needed more people around that table. What we have now is a bottom-up effort. And, you know, I mean, on one hand, it's great. I think I was reading the latest data. You know, we have 170 countries engaging, and that accounts for 93% of global emissions. And the idea is that they all voluntarily propose what they're going to do. And then maybe, because we haven't agreed on this yet, maybe every five years we come back and have a gut check. Are, are we on track? Are we, are we getting where we need to go? But, but even that's not agreed yet in Paris. So it's, it's when you ask, you know, is this better? It's, you know, it's like herding cats. It's going to be much more challenging. And we're still not certain whether we have a sufficiently robust agreement that is going to have an accountability uh, clause or or metric placed in there, where at least we're coming back periodically and saying, are are we anywhere close to where we need to be? Now that's important for the from the following perspective. If you look at the collective um, carbon emissions that are pledged through these INDCs, it's it's only an eight percent reduction, 
And if you look at the science, you know, we need to be at a 20 to 40% reduction based on, on the trajectory. So, so everyone is pledged, but we're still, we're, and, and yes, it's positive that they've pledged. And yes, it's positive that we have an 8% reduction. That's better than zero, but we're still a long way away from where we need to go. And the question is whether the Paris Agreement will, will provide that pathway. Uh, 8% reduction by when? Uh, by, uh, that's by 2030. Okay. And we need to get to what, what amount? Well, by 2030, we need to be double or triple that. And, and the reason I'm, I'm hedging is that's another debate that's going, that hopefully <laughs> is going to be solved in, in Paris. And that's the question is, is a two degree limit sufficient or should it be 1.5? And where that tension really hits are on small island states. The difference between a two-degree limit and a 1.5 limit may be the disappearance of the Maldives, for example, or it may be the disappearance of Tuvalu, that the sea level rise that is embedded in what seems to be a small discrepancy at 0.5 degrees has significant, in fact, life-ending uh, consequences on many, many poor people that live either on coastlines or on, on low-lying islands. And so depending on whether you're, you're, you're viewing this from the, most vo the perspective of the most vulnerable, um, we have, you know, <laughs> we're talking about, uh, you know, an, an additional 10% that we need to reduce. If you're talking about this as close to business as usual for the rich countries, you know, we're, we're, we're talking 20% reductions. And, and that needs to be answered in Paris as well, and it has not been yet. Well, I've heard that um, it, it's basically we already have 1.5 degrees locked in, even if we were to stop somehow emitting carbon today. And, and a lot of people I've been reading are saying that, that now 2 degrees is, is virtually impossible, even with um, all the efforts we, we can. Um, so, so how would the debate be between well, 1.5 and, and 2? Is that still possible? Well, that ignores the whole concept of removals. So if you look only at emissions, which are primarily that come from two primary sources, that's burning fossil fuel or destroying forests, and you say, uh, if we continue uh, sort of burning fossil fuels and, and cutting forests, uh, there's there's truth to that statement. What it what it ignores is tools that we can put in place that remove carbon from the atmosphere. So forests do that naturally. Forests remove or reduce a global average of about three tons per acre. So the more forests we have or we keep, and the more forests we grow, uh, the the bigger chance we have to get towards 1.5 degrees. The second is there are technologies now that can that can pull carbon out of the atmosphere. They can put it that carbon in a soda can and you can drink it. That's called carbon neutral. <laughs> um, it goes back. <laughs> or they could take that carbon and turn it into a brick and use it in a construction uh, of a home. And you know it may be that the future we seek is going to be pulling that carbon out of the atmosphere locking it into a brick and requiring that all new construction is is embedding carbon in in infrastructure but you're absolutely right if 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 we don't remove carbon from the atmosphere 1.5 degrees is gone and 2 2 degrees is a challenge but we believe that removal removals are a critical part of the future and that that 2 degrees is achievable with removals and 1.5 degrees still should be a target simply because the difference impacts so many poor people so significantly. I mean, even to two degrees, it seems like the, the, the scale of the transformation that, that will need to happen is, is almost mind-blowing, like on the scale of what we had to do during world wars. Well, look at what's happening now in Europe. You know, why, why are so many people migrating to Europe? And, and much of what's driving that is the drought in Syria that had 500,000 farms become unviable. And in order to feed themselves, they've had to move. And in that vacuum of poverty and political breakdown, 
we, you know, we have ISIS and the rest of those. There are many other groups such as them taking advantage of that. The, the projections of science is that's going to be scaled up in terms of the impacts. There are going to be more regions that are facing these catastrophic failures, and you're going to have more people migrating. And so in that sense, it is nearly on the scale of a world war. And we're, as you, you can see the signs today, and that's the point, is that this is a world war that we can avoid if we start getting serious today and we, there, there's no silver bullet here. We have to pursue every strategy for emission reductions and every strategy for removals that are necessary if we want the world as we know it today to continue. As you said, it's a, a bottom-up approach this time around with each country submitting their own plan. So I'm a bit confused about like what an actual agreement in that context looks like, given that like, each country is saying, this is what we'll do. What does an agreement look like in that scenario? Well, the, the agreement in that scenario has three to four basic elements. So element number one is your national contribution. So what is it that you as a country believe you can do uh, towards the overall objective? The, the second question that an agreement has to have is, assuming that's not enough, which the current data shows, how regularly can we update our goals or our INDCs? That without a ratcheting up, if we just lock in the current INDCs, you know, the, the, the significant impacts due to climate change are certain. So, so we need that ratcheting up or that periodic review. The third key element is we have to have a strong finance component in here. And I guess from a practical standpoint, if a rich country looks at its emissions and determines that it's very expensive for them to transition and they can finance an equal amount of emission reductions more cheaply in a developing country, there's nothing wrong with that. That as long as it nets out and overall we're heading on the right trajectory, if emission reductions are fixed and stuck in one location, but emission reductions can be facilitated through intelligent finance elsewhere, we need an agreement that encourages that. Then, then the fourth key point from my perspective is it needs to be inclusive, that if, if countries don't see in this agreement a way for them to engage in a way that they can explain to their people back home that this is doable and inclusive for everyone, it's not going to work. We need, we need all countries actively engaged in the process. And that's the fourth key thing that I think uh, we have to deliver in, in, in Paris to be successful. Can you tell me about what the main sort of cleavages or, or blocks are at these agreements? Like, is it, should we understand it mainly in terms of rich countries and poor countries? Is it more complicated than that? Because I, I've heard that people negotiate essentially as groups. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, the, the UN process, and I guess every human process, uh, ends up in groups of countries that share common interest. So as you look at the, the UNFCC or the, the UN process, you have Europe that tends to share a common experience with another group called the Umbrella Group. And the Umbrella Group is sort of all the other developed countries that are not in Europe. So it's the US, it's Australia, it's, it's, uh, you know, it's Canada, it's Norway, it's a bunch of all those. Then you have the group of 77, which is, which is a historical sort of manifestation of developing countries. And to be clear, New Zealand was once a G77 member. Uh, they've now graduated out, and they're part of the umbrella group. But the G77 is now like, I think, 140 countries or 144 countries. Now, even in developing countries, there's a lot of differentiation. And so second-tier alliances are necessary. So you have the Association of Small Island States, and they, they're aligning and saying, hey, guys, you know, we're some of the most vulnerable. If we just have China speak for us, our interests aren't going to be heard. So then you have a second tier in the G77. So you have a coalition, then you have, you know, least developed countries, you have Africa, 
And they all operate as a second tier amongst the developing countries and in many cases have very different views. So it, become, it becomes complex in the party groupings. Then your second question was about the fault lines. Okay, so now you have all these different groups of with similar experience or similar sort of economic status then operating individually and as part of groups. Well, what is it they disagree on? So some of the fault lines are, as I talked earlier, historical responsibility. Okay, well, if the rich countries are primarily responsible for the problem, what is their obligation in the solution? And there's a lot of debate about that. I've heard the U.S. speak just very recently, well, we've done the math, and actually we don't really have that much historical responsibility, and there are countries that are in the developing world that have more responsibility than us, and there's a, there's a big effort to sort of confuse historical responsibility. So the next question is about rich and poor. So you have countries like Singapore or some of the oil states where they say, well, look, you're richer than many of the countries with the historical responsibility. So, you know, let's not just focus on historical responsibility. Let's focus on who has the means. So Singapore, you should be doing more or Saudi Arabia or, you know, so, so you have that rich versus poor fault line. The, the third fault line you have is what I call the vulnerability factor. You know, what about those countries where inaction ends their history as they know it, that they disappear off the face of the earth. Is, is, you know, can they necessarily rely on, on other countries to, to be their voice? And so you, you have those coming out. Then a, a fourth fault line is the oil producers. So they're saying, hey, you know, we may be in the Middle East. We're not really that wealthy uh, per capita. Uh, you're saying that we're no longer to, you're no longer going to buy our oil because it's causing these problems. That's going to have a huge impact on our economy. So you need to talk to us about how we're going to transition. So that's called response measures. How do we respond? What measures do we put in place to respond to the weaning off fossil fuels? And those are fault lines. That that gets to well, who pays, and how much. And how does the right to develop fit in there? Uh, that, you know, if you're a poor country, what is your right to continue to sort of pull yourselves out of poverty and do it in a way that isn't, you know, impacting the atmosphere? Those are some of the fault lines that we're all trying to manage in Paris. How do you get an agreement that balances all those issues? That seems uh, quite daunting. <laughs> well, that, that's, that's, why, that's why some fail. Some meetings fail. And that's why... It's a challenge to be understood from the outside because you have so many different sort of stakeholder groups pushing so many different agendas and trying to get a common agreement. It's a real challenge. Yeah, because I mean, to imagine, you know, Saudi Arabia trying to understand Tuvalu, whose country might not exist even with two degrees of warming, it's, it's hard to imagine how they can see eye to eye. Exactly right. But they're all in the G77 together, which is why then they create these subgroups. And in many cases, that then, you know, you have another subgroup, which is called the, the basics, uh, which is now India, China, South Africa, and the wealthy developing countries. So it just continues to fracture and, and make a, an outcome more challenging. But having said all of that, it's possible. Complex, but possible. Can you give me a sense of what it's like to actually be there as a, a negotiator? Um, so you're there at these meetings um, all day. Like, what exactly is, is going on? Um, let me explain it sort of three or four ways. So number one, it's physically exhausting. Our team typically gets three to four hours of sleep per day for two weeks. And for some people, that's no problem. But for most of us, <laughs> we operate much better the closer we get to eight. So to be at three or four and then having to negotiate and think critically and articulate concisely, it's a challenge. I can imagine it. That sounds like a terrible idea. <laughs> yeah, I mean... A lot of a room full of grumpy people. <laughs> exactly. And, and it happens. Uh, you know, they have best, you know, everyone has their best expectations and I'll get into, uh, I'll talk to you a little bit right after this about, well, what happens in the rooms? How does it work? 
And, and the, the point is, nobody wants to do that. But the way it's structured, uh, we end up with very time-consuming discussions and negotiations. So, so you're tired. And, you know, not only that, the food is usually horrible. So you don't want to eat. So you're overtired, you're underfed. And, you know, with the, with the invention of these latest gadgets, we're actually measuring our steps now during these negotiations. <laughs> and some guys on my team are walking a marathon every day between rooms, uh, trying to get a hold of everyone in one room and move them to another room. And so here you are with three to four hours of sleep, not enough calories, and walking a marathon every day. It's a challenge. The, the second point is a lot of it is very boring. Okay, for, for large periods of time, it's very boring because it's a diplomatic cycle. Um, every country has the right to speak. And not every country is, is succinct, uh, crisp, articulate, and short. <laughs> so you get many countries that will talk for literally uh, 20 minutes. And at the end of it, sometimes you're questioning what the point of it was. But Diplomatically, you can't stop them, and you have to listen to them. So you spend a large portion of your day listening to things you've heard before and that aren't particularly that relevant and trying to interject relevance into these discussions. And, and it, can be, it can be boring. They're group positions. They're often not innovative. They, they're slow to evolve. Often they're not well thought out. And a lot of times it's political rhetoric. Now, why would you go through the system where you're exhausted and bored, why would you bother? And the reason is that these agreements actually do have potential to, to solve the problem and to change things. And for brief moments in time, there are very concise and meaningful breakthroughs. And so you have to be ready for those. So you're exhausted, a lot of it is boring, for 15 to 20 minutes to two hours, there's a really important session that's going on or negotiation where you have to mobilize your teams. And if you're successful there, you can really change the paradigm. But it happens very quickly. It happens at unexpected times. So, you know, words matter because these are, these are treaty documents. You have to be able to understand words. You have to be able to, you have to be able to propose words that solve problems. At the same time, Optics matter. You have to be able to signal the intent clearly, and, and often that doesn't happen in these treaties agreements. And you have to balance the, the legal versus the political tensions on a regular basis. So it's, you know, it's not something I recommend to friends. You know, if this is, you know, you have something, you, 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 you're bored and you have something you want to do, come in and negotiate. But at the same time, I've spent 10 years doing it because I, I do believe in the process. I do, I do believe this is the only way to, to turn the, the ship in the right direction. I saw a draft uh, agreement, or I was reading about uh, what was coming out of Bonn a few weeks ago as they tried to set the stage for the agreement in, in Paris. And it, it was interesting to look at because it's just, uh, just brackets of potential words that they might have in there. It seems uh, it, you really have to argue about very specific words and, and commas and things like that. Is that right? You're exact, that's exactly the situation, and, and that feeds me a little bit into the process. Let me, let me talk about the process quickly and how it's supposed to work to resolve those tensions. So you have two levels of negotiations. One is technical and one is political. So the, the technical negotiators are people from government departments, and they're bureaucrats, and many of them are great at what they do. But they, they will then negotiate, and what, what you saw coming out of Bonn was the work of the technical people, the bureaucrats. And their job is they're given a mandate, so uh, you know a country says, hey, we have to have renewables in there. They will go to those negotiations and insert renewables in every relevant clause and in many unrelevant clauses just to make sure it's there. The second process then is the technical people are to whittle that down. So now everyone has put in this agreement every wish list that they possibly have, which is what came out of Bonn. And the next, the first week in Paris will be to whittle that down. Again, the technical people. So, you know, please, ladies and gentlemen, we understand that you threw everything up there that you could possibly want. 
can you whittle that down and make sure you have exactly in there what you need and nothing more? What happens then is the second process kicks in and the ministers come in. And the minister's job is to translate this into something politically they can explain to their constituents. And their job is to solve problems that technical people can't solve. And that's the second step of the process. So each decision text goes forward to ministers, and their job is to approve, to send it back to negotiators to say you didn't go far enough, or to say, negotiators, you're never going to solve it, so we're going to meet in a small group and solve it at a political level. The the process in Paris, what you need to be watching is how successful are the technical people in shrinking this 50-page text into something closer to 20 to 30, and what issues have they not been able to resolve at the end of Saturday? Uh, this is, uh, what, December 5th, I think. What have they not been able to solve, and how much work are they putting on the ministers? And then the second week we'll be seeing, well, how much are, of this unsolved work will the ministers take on themselves and how much will they send back to the negotiators saying you didn't do you didn't do enough work spend another couple days and come back to us and that's the way the process is going to go all the way uh, all the way to the to the end of paris and so 130 world leaders are are coming too right at the the start so how does that work it would seem that uh, coming at the end would be the most important thing so so what are they doing when they arrive are they talking to each other are they like what, are they talking to the negotiators <laughs> well the 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 idea is the following that when we were in Denmark it was observed that the leaders should be there at the end to actually solve the problems and what happened was it wasn't possible to get 130 leaders in one room around a table eyeballing each other and trying to solve problems. So they got a subset in a room. And I was in the green room. I was there. Um, I was watching President Obama, uh, Angela Merkel, President Sarkozy, and you know all these all these countries in a in a small room trying to negotiate uh, to to solve this. But what happened was. There were more people outside the room than there were in the room, and the whole thing collapsed. This is when we got the Copenhagen Accord with like the, the informal agreement? This is when we got the Copenhagen Accord, and, and there was a small group that approved it. The vast majority did not. Um, there was a, a, a major disaster on the floor. No one would accept it, and it, it never was approved. It ended up as a footnote to another decision because it wasn't inclusive and participatory. So in Paris, what they've said is, look, we don't want to repeat that. So can we have the presidents come at the beginning, give the, di give the mandate, dictate what needs to happen to everyone, set the vision for what they want to see occur at the end of the two weeks, and then leave. Then let's allow the technical people to have a week and the ministers to have a second week, and hopefully at the end of that we'll have an agreement. But what the French do not want is leaders coming in at the end and having only a small subset of people deciding for the whole world. So, so do you think it's a positive step then that the world leaders will be coming at the start? Um, I'm mixed on it in the following sense, that yes, you need a president or a prime minister to give you directive, but in theory, they could do that uh, before you left your capital. There are very difficult issues that may need to be solved at the end, and it would be better if there was an inclusive process at the end to bring whatever level a country wanted to send to, to agree uh, to a final outcome. But this is a little bit, uh, uh, you know, everyone's still shell-shocked from Copenhagen, and they don't want anything that would, that would look like, walk like, or talk like the Copenhagen outcome, and so they're, they're trying to just they're trying to go with the opposite. Uh, I, I think it will work, and that is part of what I, uh, you know, uh, what my evaluation of the overarching agreement would be. This is a very different outcome that we're seeking. We're seeking an, an agreement that allows countries to voluntarily do what it is they want to do, and the difficult issues are just: do we agree to review that periodically, and do we agree that finance should be part of the deal? It's not that hard, candidly. If we can't agree to this, the UNFCC just needs to pull pull up its tent and and uh, cease to exist. The asks are not that difficult. 
And I think we, and we, we have to be able to get it done. And that's what, I think that's the calculus of the French too, that if uh, we shouldn't need leaders there, it's not that difficult. And if we do, and if it fails, maybe that's an indictment on the process as a whole. Can the process be derailed by just one bad actor um, at all? Like if, say, just one country decides, we, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> the answer, the answer to that is yes. Um, the, the, the way the, the process works is somewhat counterintuitive, and it's, it, it's, it's ineffective due primarily to rich countries, and I'll explain. So the, both the Kyoto Protocol and the UNFCC allow voting. They say that if you can't agree, you should take a vote. It's just reasonable. But in the rules of procedure, the rich countries have not allowed Rule 42 to be passed, which explains how voting would happen. So you have the optics, which is you can solve uh, you can solve something by voting only when consensus isn't reached. But in practice, the rules of procedure never allow you to call for a vote. So we end up where in a definition of consensus, and consensus was traditionally viewed as every single country in the room has to say yes, and if they don't, there's no consensus and there's no agreement. What that facilitated was hostage-taking. You were able then to have a special interest and say that we're not going to come to consensus unless our special interest is addressed. And we've seen what special interest power does in political systems around the world. It's not healthy. And it hasn't been healthy to the UNFCC either. After Bali, we started to think about, well, maybe consensus isn't exactly 100%. Maybe it's pretty close. And there's been some work around that. There have been cases in, in Cancun, and there have been cases, there have been subsequent cases where there was one party raising, saying no, 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 based on a special interest, and the agreement went through. We have proposed that as this problem grows, we have to be much more proactive about how we make decisions, and that voting needs to be instituted. And yes, consensus is important for inclusion, but when special interest takes over consensus, there has to be a mechanism that allows us to push through that. And so we've been advocating voting for a long time. And, uh, you know, what consensus does in simple terms, you get the lowest ambition. Because if you're talking about how, fa how high you're going to shoot, the consensus is always at the lowest target. And if you talk, you get the slowest pace. If you talk about how fast we should go, then with consensus, you can only go at what everyone agrees to be the slowest pace. So consensus just doesn't work. It's, it's, not, it's not the right fit for the challenge that we face. And, and if you look at the Paris Agreement, voting is in there again, but we really have to get back to the rules of procedure to make that practical. So, so it doesn't sound like it's, uh, it's looking that much better then? You know, the mood is changing. Uh, I think... I think, you know, uh, Papua New Guinea and Mexico have an amendment into the convention itself to say if consensus isn't reached, any party can ask for a vote. That amendment is on the table. Uh, it's a slow process, but I think we're going to get to a point in the very near future where people understand that a vote is close enough that, that the, the, the principle of hostage taking and for special interest is not viable anymore in that the more you do that, the more likely the vote is. And we've seen a lot more proactive solutions uh, since that time. So I, I'm still positive. I still think we will come out of Paris with an agreement. The agreement will in no way be good enough, but it should have embedded within it the, the tools that allow us to improve it over time. How significant would you say the agreement between uh, America and China uh, that came out last year was? There was a lot of people who said this is a historic agreement, especially since, you know, the, the fact that China was developing so quickly and was under no obligation to limit its its emissions was seen as a major stumbling block. Do you think that has played a, a key role in preparing the lead up to these negotiations? Well, look, the there are two ways to look at that. And it's been a big fight between John Kerry and President Hollande. Right. If, if that was, a, you know, the, the, the U.S. originally said the reason they weren't signing up to the Kyoto Protocol is that China wasn't in it. So now the U.S. and China have agreed. 
So you should be able to go to Paris then and get a legally binding agreement. Well, what does Kerry say? No, we can't have a legally binding agreement because the Senate still won't ratify it. So, you know, it still hasn't changed the paradigm. We're still going to Paris with with the exact same uh, weaknesses in the system that we had before that was signed up. So has it materially, materially changed the negotiations and the structure of the future agreement? The answer is no. But was it an, was it an important signal? And the important signal, I agree with, that to have China as a, a leading developing country agree to a voluntary INDC that it was going to be proactive in support sent signals to other developing countries and having developing countries and rich countries all as part of a solution is critical. So it had political symbolism importance and it did catalyze what I'd call the right momentum. Do I see it as game changing? Absolutely not. Just because because you still can't get a binding treaty in with the America or no, because, yeah, because the agreement we're going to come out of Paris because of the United States is going to be you volunteer to participate and you volunteer to implement the terms of the agreement. And that essentially all comes down to the fact that it would be impossible to pass anything in, in the uh, U.S. Senate? As I understand it. Uh, you know, Kerry wrote a, a, you know, a piece in the Financial Times saying, hey, guys, don't don't lead us back there because we're not going to get it through the, the Senate. And in fact, it was in the papers today, the Republicans coming out saying, and even the finance guys don't start cashing those checks yet, because not only the emission reductions are we trying to roll back, but the financial commitments we're not going to approve, uh, because we're going to approve the budgets. So, you know, so I guess my question back to you is, has that has the China agreement changed the dynamic? As, as far as I can tell, those were the exact same issues we were dealing with yeah, last year and five years and 10 years. Right. And it seems scary, given that if, uh, if it's all dependent on executive power, if a Republican wins who denies climate change, then it seems like uh, everything is back to, uh, to square one. You, you, you run the risk of that. But at the same time, that's reality. So I was having this discussion at lunch, and that is, is this a perfect agreement? Is it going to be a perfect agreement? Absolutely not. Is the agreement in and of itself going to solve the problem? Very unlikely. But should this agreement provide a platform where once people, and I mean the voters of the world, understand the significance of the problem, they have a pathway and a framework that allows them to prepare plans that are more and more ambitious to succeed? The answer is this agreement should provide that. Um, and is an agreement in Paris better than zero? The answer is definitely. Uh, so we have to work for it and we have to view it not as the answer, but we have to view it as an important step uh, in this journey we have to de well to take our economies to a carbon neutral position. Well, to end off, I was curious what still gives you um, hope in this process, given that you, you've been involved with it for so long and it sounds quite frustrating and, uh, you know, it goes, all goes back to Rio uh, in 1992 and yet global emissions have, have still continued to, to rise. So, so what still gives you faith in, in the process? You know, it's, if you look back in human history, every um, major issue that humanity has faced has taken time. I mean, if you look at the issue of slavery, that wasn't solved in one night or in one day or in in one process. You look at piracy, uh, it took decades to solve and to, to turn the ship around. To have a, a short and concise answer or response to a very large and complex problem is unrealistic. So I think we have to be in for the long haul. We have to celebrate the steps forward, and we have to work to block against backsliding, and we we have to remain committed. That there are there are issues as humans that that we have to stick with, and education and health and 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 dealing with climate change and man-made difficulties in the environment are things we have to stay committed to, and they're multi-generational commitments. and And I see climate change as just one of those big picture issues. And I'll do my part. But 
we have to have the next generation carry forward and we need and we, we just have to keep this moving forward. And uh, I'd just be curious, how, how do you prepare for these things? Uh, personally, given that you sleep only uh, three to four hours a night, is there anything you do in the, in the week before to prepare yourself? Yes, it is. It is a physical battle. So I jog more often. I try to oversleep for months in advance. <laughs> I, I try to build the reserves. Uh, it's no joke. Uh, I have not done that in the past. And I've got sick in the, after like the first four days and been in bed. Um, it, you really, really have to, to prepare physically and mentally uh, to succeed. Well, uh, let's uh, certainly hope that uh, that happens and that that pre preparation uh, pays off. Uh, I hope so, too. And, and thanks for, you know, shining a light on these issues. And please keep doing it because the more people we have thinking about this and the, the more the more the higher chance we have to solve it. And not everybody has to suffer like I do through these negotiations. <laughs> There's so much you can do at home. There's so many things that that we can all contribute in small ways. But you add all that up and, and we've got big changes. Well, Kevin Conrad, um, thanks so much for talking to us today and explaining some of the process. I appreciate it. Uh, keep up the good work. That was Kevin Conrad, the director of a party group called the Coalition for Rainforest Nations, who represented Papua New Guinea for eight years at these climate talks, and this year is on the delegation for Panama. Well, that's all for this episode of The Elephant, and we'll be back tomorrow with a conversation with Yeb Sanyo, a former lead negotiator for the Philippines and a leader of the People's Pilgrimage, a march for climate change that's taking place right now from Rome to Paris. The Elephant is made with support of the CKAA, a European society of entrepreneurs, scientists, students, professionals, and policy officers working to create a climate-resilient society. Find out more at ckaa.eu. I'm Kevin Kaners. See you tomorrow. <laughs>